Hi there. Welcome to Dharma Punks NYC. My name is Josh. I'm a Buddhist pastor, and I've been the teacher since uh, 2005. Just before I jump into tonight's talk, if you'd like to support my work, PayPal is on the dharmapunksnyc.com site, and the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. So thanks for that. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about what some people call the fourth trauma response or the fourth survival reaction, along with fight, flight, freeze. There's also the fawn response, fawning. The autonomic nervous system responds to cues of safety, danger, and threat in the world around us and in our bodies and from our connection with other people via what we could call three pathways of response. There's three neurological pathways that activate different behaviors in us. The most ancient pathway is the old parasympathetic, which is more commonly known as the immobilization or freeze tendency to stop, dissociate, to essentially almost play dead in the face in, when confronted with imminent physical overwhelm, the possibility of death. This ancient system, this ancient parasympathetic system, is what kicks in not only when we're confronted with overwhelming threats, but also when we're healing from sickness or when we're struck with intense grief over a loss of an attachment figure or a significant abandonment. We grieve. And when we grieve, we're largely in this ancient parasympathetic setting. In this setting, this ancient freeze shut down, while it allows us to heal from physiological injuries and process grief, it's detrimental to our social and psych especially our social well-being. It removes us from tribal interactions, from interacting with others. Dissociation is only useful in traumatic situations, but not really outside of them. Now, the slightly more modern uh, second approach is from the sympathetic nervous system, which mobilizes us, fight and flight. And this uses uh, parts of the brain hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal glands uh, above the liver to release cortisol. It triggers, raises our heartbeat, stops digestion. And when we're in it, we have repetitive, ongoing thoughts. Again, the impulse to fight or flee. Um, and over time, if we stay stuck in this mobilize, I'm under threat or I'm overwhelmed state, it causes what's called chronic stress. And we will develop insomnia. 
as a result. The most modern pathway of response is the, the recent development in the parasympathetic setting. The vagal nerve uh, allows us to have social engagement. It allows us to entertain different options. It allows us to pause before acting most of the time. It allows us to broaden and build in and deepen our, uh, our relationships. It's healthy for social bonds. It's good for our lasting psychological and physiological well-being. It allows us to express our emotions on our face when, and allows us to be empathetic when we are in the social engaged setting, as opposed to mobilize or freeze, we can be empathetic, we can listen to others, we can bond, we can communicate. The manner in which we move between these three settings, the freeze tendency, the flight or fight tendency, or the stop, engage, communicate, social engage, is guided by unconscious decision-making in the brain that we are not in control of. Literally regions as deep and as old as the brain stem and the cingulate and the pre-conscious amygdala, these regions which we have no control over or awareness of their processes, these old regions of the brain, as we move through our life and we interact with people while we're talking and hearing the words people say unconsciously in the background, these ancient and old regions are observing nonverbal facial expressions, gestures, tone of voice, stuff that goes on in the background that we generally don't pay attention to while we think and we listen to the words other people say. All these nonverbal signals are being read by these ancient regions and they come up with a decision. I'm either feeling on the verge of being abandoned, rejected, criticized, in which case I'll, I'll go on a mobilized setting, or I feel safe. I feel somebody's listening to me, somebody's interested in what I have to offer, and my nervous system will switch me back into social engage where I'll be relaxed, my body will feel comfortable, I'll feel no impulses to fight or flee. All of this is done unconsciously. Interestingly, the Buddha noted some 2,500 years ago in his profound insight to the way the human mind works, very similar insights known as the Paticca Samuppada. Uh, the Buddha noted that early life events form core traits and perceptions, and these perceptions filter the way we look and make contact with the world around us. And in contacting all of which is unconscious, we have immediate feelings which are unconsciously driven. And these feelings activate reactive impulses 
and that's where we get the fight, flight, freeze response. And from after that, it's only after all that, that thought and behavior occurs. So the Buddha noted himself how unconscious and how uh, so much of human behavior is not under our control, but is engaged by processes over which are essentially automatic in that we're not steering them. When we grow up and have reliable caregiving, we are people who feel confident to disclose our feelings, we're creative, we're explorative, we are likely to choose healthy opportunities and growth choices. Um, and as a result, we'll spend more of our life in the social engaged setting. The greater degree there are emotional neglect, abandonments, rejection, shaming, or abuse, what's otherwise known as adverse childhood experiences, ACA, ACEs, we'll have a predilection not to stay as frequently in social engage with others. We'll have a predilection to uh, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn responses. If we find in our adult life um, a situation where somebody suddenly around us is angry or irritable, those of us who grew up in largely secure environments will still stay comfortable and will not be shifted into a need to placate or appease or reduce the tension in the room. But those who grew up in family systems where parents were abusive or prone to sudden shifts of mood and temperament or uh, have experienced traumatic interpersonal events will feel far more threatened. Their brainstem and amygdala will perceive a greater degree of threat. And in situations where we don't feel on the verge of physiological uh, assault, where we don't think somebody's going to hit or attack us necessarily, but where the tension feels threatening to the relationship, then it may very well trigger the fawn response, which is to perform and manage other people's emotions and maintain a relaxing, soothing environment by presenting the most compliant, agreeable face to another person to prevent them from rejecting us, abandoning, or acting out in some way that's unpleasant. So we might suddenly find ourselves, even though we could care less about an issue, suddenly acting as if we're very enthusiastic about someone. We might shower them with compliments. We might, in the face of someone who becomes suddenly angry or irritable or even depressed, we might feel a need 
to become funny and humorous or to immediately drop whatever is important to us and express caregiving or uh, instincts in the face of unpleasant people who uh, seem put out, we might pretend to be doing okay or be in a self-reliant place simply as a way not to draw any attention to ourselves. The fear of losing attention is so threatening to the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex that in new relationships, when we feel some, we're losing someone's attention, we might have a fawn impulse to flirt or to become more uh, a, a performative in how uh, much we like them to keep their attention. In fact, some people, a part of their fawn response is to have sex with someone if they feel that other person is losing interest or is becoming irritable or the relationship is in jeopardy. The fawn response is not just uttering words, it's compliant behaviors, it's behaviors that are not authentic, but are uh, impelled as a way to placate or appease someone else who is in any way irritable or frustrated. Other symptoms are, you know, an inability to be around other people's anger, again, without an overwhelming instinct to try to cheer them up or uh, tone them down. Uh, there are, for numbers of reasons, people who engage in the phone response find it difficult to identify their own feelings. They find it very, very difficult to say no. And in workplaces, they, while they're overwhelmed with too much work, they'll still take on more projects if asked. They will find it unable to say just how stressed or how overwhelmed they are. They will have a tendency to deflect the anger that they feel that they've repressed while they're appeasing someone else. They repressed their own anger, and then they might deflect it onto entirely innocent people in their life. One response is got many, many, many names in psychology, uh, not to go over too many, but uh, Freud called the fawn or the people-pleasing response reaction formation. For him, the tendency to abandon our authentic primary emotions and present a uh, performative emotion that's more agreeable friendlier, happier, enthusiastic, or, uh, or appealing for Freud was a primary way that we repress emotional pain. Winnicott called it the, for, the false self. For Winnicott, the child who has a parent that doesn't reliably emotionally respond in an attuned way, that child will over time, learn to present to the world an entirely false persona, not based on authentic feelings, but based on 
um, what the child has observed, uh, the kind of behaviors the child has observed gets attention. The fawn response, when we see it in other people, we might think, oh, what a kiss-ass or how sycophantic is that? But actually, the fawn response is almost, or the people-pleasing response is almost always ingrained, automatic, activated by pre-conscious regions of the brain. And thus to judge others for it is to ignore the old roots and early childhood experiences, as well as just how ingrained the survival response is in the human brain. We humans are pack animals. Any form of interpersonal rejection or abandonment is painful, and regions of the brain just don't want us to be rejected, so they will trigger this tendency to placate and appease at all costs. Um, there are many, many uh, famous uh, 20th century psychologists uh, were fascinated and offered a lot of insights into this. Uh, one of my heroes that I don't generally talk about, Ronald Fairbairn, uh, almost a weird pronounced name, uh, said that he believed that we don't, as human beings, have a given unconscious, that he, did, he disagreed with Freud, that we don't have necessarily at birth this unconscious, but that he believed that over the course of childhood and adult life, the parts of our mind that hold positive memories about others and still feel optimistic about attaching becomes held consciously, but that certain painful memories of neglect, abuse, shaming, and rejection are too unpleasant for the ego to hold in its day-to-day -day life, so it gets repressed. And these parts, when they start to return, create anxiety, and the greater the anxiety, the greater the dependence on defense mechanisms like fawning. So, in other words, um, the unconscious, all the things that are blocked from awareness are unpleasant memories of interpersonal events. And when those memories start to return, and those feelings start to return, we will placate and appease anyone around us as a way to keep those feelings blocked from consciousness. Fawning, the greater it is ingrained, the more it is an autumn, the more it is constantly triggered, leads to a catastrophic interruption of healthy adult relationships because healthy adult relationships are grounded on disclosing our emotions authentically. If we are with a romantic partner or friend, and over time our automatic fawning response has us constantly simply acting as if everything's okay, like uh, we're always enthusiastic, 
if we are always presenting a compliant or complacent self, then over time people detect that what we're presenting versus the nonverbal cues we're signaling are incompatible and they'll start to feel or sense that there's something inauthentic or uh, at the very least awkward about our presentation. Also, more importantly, if we engage constantly in people-pleasing, we can never be certain if we're actually loved, actually cared about. We won't know if it's the compliant behaviors that are loved or if it's something about our core self. The more we fawn, the, there's no way we heal damaged sense of self, low self-esteem, low self-worth, because it it, in some way it actually validates the sense that there's something wrong with me the more I conceal and the more I withhold my true feelings. Um, when people engage in too much people-pleasing, the negative feelings that we might express towards others are turned inwards towards ourself, and self-criticism and self-loathing becomes more uh, endemic. We'll find it difficult to stand up to, for ourselves when mistreated. Fawning makes us uh, increasingly vulnerable to narcissists. Narcissists almost unconsciously gravitate towards people who have deeply ingrained fawning tendencies because it validates their sense of power and their sense of authority. And of course, fawning involves cutting off awareness of our authentic emotions, which are expressed in our body. So over time, people who fawn are less and less aware of their own feelings, their own embodied state. And this means that while we are engaged in people-pleasing, we will almost be in a state of what's called derealization. The less we feel our bodies, the less all experience seems to be real. And the more people engage in automatic fawning, whether they're having sex when they don't want to, or they're smiling, or they're, uh, they're, they're impulsively, compulsively cracking jokes in awkward social settings, they'll almost feel like they're in a fugue state or a fog or a liminal state. It, life no longer feels fully under our control. Suppressed primary emotions that we feel might be too awkward to express are actually containing valuable messages for us. People who fawn too compulsively uh, not only withhold their anger, which then hinders their ability to push back when narcissists or um, transgressive people are being too pushy, 
they won't be able to experience grief or even fear during threatening interpersonal reaction, uh, interpersonal relationships. So I think hopefully I've done a good job on selling you why this is an important uh, concern and worth addressing. So um, to address the core shame, the weakened self-worth, the fawning behavior, I would say first and foremost that there are strategies that can help, even though the regions of the brain and the processes of the brain that trigger the fawning response are often automatic. There are still ways we can lessen our tendency to rely on people-pleasing as a way to survive socially or in awkward interpersonal situations. The first is that when there are certain people, generally those who have a tendency to express anger or are very curt or emotionally distant, when there are certain people in our life that we tend to almost automatically placate, even though we don't really want to, even though their behavior is not pleasant, we have a tendency to be uh, overly courteous or complimenting towards them. The first thing to do is to avoid being ambushed. Ambushed means when people catch us off guard and suddenly want to talk or to uh, engage when we're not prepared. Fawning, because it's an automatic response triggered by ancient regions of the brain, it is especially susceptible to sudden situations where we're not prepared, where we feel overwhelmed, where we don't feel we know how to respond. And so it's far more likely that we will engage in uh, fawning behavior if we're caught off guard. So if for example, somebody is in a job and there's an unpleasant supervisor or work colleague that's very pushy, the most important uh, process would be not to immediately pick up the phone when they call, not to immediately be corralled into a conversation to, to develop the self-permission to say either, you know, if a text comes in or if a phone call or if somebody's reaching us, trying to reach us through a sudden uh, way is to not respond immediately, to stop, to uh, get to a place where we're in a relaxed state, to uh, visualize people that incur that images of strength to get to a place where we're not caught off guard, where we're in a body and in a state where we can respond. Uh, simply avoiding ambushes is one of the most important strategy, which means wait until we're ready to initiate a conversation or a dialogue bides us a little time so that we can initiate the time 
and the place of the conversation. So if there's someone that I would have a fawning response would suddenly be at a social gathering or I would stumble upon them on the street and they started to talk, I would simply say, hey, I'm in a rush. Uh, it's important. Let me connect with you in a little while. I'd even give them a time, but I wouldn't be forced into an interaction with somebody with whom I've noticed that I have a tendency to be inauthentic. Thankfully, I can't think of anybody that fits that anymore in my life, but if it were the case, that's an important step. Another tool is to repair one's sense of self by acts of volunteerism, therapy, or self-esteem building practices. And we'll be doing one in tonight's meditation that helps build up a more robust, secure sense of self that makes us less likely to be pushed around. And finally, it's important to become curious about the cues of safety and danger that are arising in our nervous systems all the time. Uh, we are constantly shifting between social, engage, mobilize, shutdown. For instance, if somebody goes out on a date and for the first time and the, conver the person lights up when, when they enter the room and things are going well, they're in social engage, but then they start to notice that the other person's attention wanders or that they're not emotionally, their facial expressions aren't aligning with what they're saying or eye contact drops away or they, their body leans back, then they'll start to feel in their body the tensing, the tightening of the stomach, of the shoulders, uh, heart beating faster, that indicates we're in a mobilized state. And then if we went to the back bathroom and came back and the other person wasn't there, you know, maybe they went away to the bathroom or whatever, but that sense of being totally rejected might trigger a dorsal dive. And we'd know that because suddenly we'd feel all the energy rush down to the pit of our stomach. We'd feel this sense of losing losing all the energy in our body. Fascinatingly, one of the great experiments in um, 20th century developmental psychology by an, a guy named Ed Tronick is called the still face experiment that shows how these states move so quickly. What Tronick did was very simple. He had a mother... He had mothers playing with their year-old infants and uh, six-month-to-a-year-old infants. And he instructed the mothers to suddenly, after, while they were playing and giggling and looking at their child, he instructed the mothers to suddenly have an, a completely impassive face without any eye contact following the baby. And within 20 to 30 seconds, the baby's social engaged demeanor would suddenly change to mobilized state. The baby would frantically signal, push, try to get the mother's attention, but the mother's face 
wouldn't be moved. And then finally, the baby would literally collapse into a freeze state of dissociation. So as adults, we're not as automatic as those children in that before we engage in fight, flight, fawning, or freeze behaviors, there's always telltale signs in our body. If I'm in social engage, my belly will be soft, my heart rate will be, uh, especially my long, my exhalations will be very long, as long as my in-breaths. My chest will feel warm and open. If I'm immobilized, my body will start to contract, my shoulders will tense, my uh, and reduce the width of my chest, my stomach will become tight, and my inhalations will become marked, but my exhalations will become will be cut off. And if I'm in a freeze, I'll start to things around me will seem unreal. I'll start to feel heavy, sluggish, and it'll be difficult for me to form useful thoughts or impulses. So um, I hope tonight's talk was of some interest. And what we're going to do now is put in practice some of the tools to reduce our reliance on fawn uh, behaviors. So I thank you for listening and find a really comfortable position to do this practice. And don't try to meditate. Just close your eyes and allow your awareness to settle. And start bringing the focus of your attention to the most prominent sensation going on in your body right now. If it's a awkward or painful sensation, uh, pain in the back or in the neck or perhaps somewhere else, hold that sensation or sensations softly in an attention that soothes the outermost area of any tension. So if it's in the muscles in the back of your neck, just hold those sensations and then breathe into and just try to slowly, softly release the area around the difficulty. or shift your position in a way that makes it feel easier to be with that discomfort. Don't try to push pain or discomfort out of your awareness, but don't necessarily only focus on it. So what we'll do now is we'll find the most pleasant sensation. For some of us, it might be in the palm of our hands or the very often for me, there's a 
appealing group of sensations in the area right between the eyes. Sometimes in the forehead. Or for some it might be in the soles of the arches of the feet or any other area where you feel a sense of ease. And just use your inhalations to spread this ease through the body and use exhalations to release any tension to allow the body to feel even more comfortable. If there's any physical discomfort that remains, just whisper in the mind, welcome, or it's okay. If there's an unpleasant sound or sensation emanating in the space around you, just whisper in your mind, welcome. Resistance only amplifies discomfort or unpleasant sensations. Sometimes in a practice, I like to visualize the very end of a long journey after traveling a long distance and all the uh, travel has reached its conclusion and I've reached that place where I can put down all the bags and settle into a really comfortable chair and just feel that I've arrived, I've landed in life. And that's the state we want to cultivate. That feeling when we find that perfectly secluded beach spot where the sounds of the ocean are nearby. And we put down all the baskets and towels we brought and then we lie on a blanket and just feel the 
sensations of contact with the sand and we hear the sounds of the ocean doing the same in our meditation, just relaxing, releasing into whatever is supporting us. And listening to the sounds around us without visualizing what's creating the sound. So we'll just sit here for a little while, practicing. Every time the mind wanders to a thought or to uh, some spontaneous image created or conjured by the mind, just allow that thought or image or memory to be there, but just return the focus of your awareness to what's actually happening right here and right now in your body or the sounds surrounding you.
So at this point, if you'd like to continue on with some practices, you can join me or you can continue simply to practice being with ongoing sensations and sounds. So for this practice, what I'd like you to do is bring to mind either the image or names of people, a couple of people, it could be as little as two or four, associated with feelings of safety and feelings of emotional distance, rejection, or unpleasantness. So we'll call the people that are pleasant Uh, pleasant people, and the people that are prone to shows of aggression or anger or irritability, we'll just, for the sake of this, refer to them as the unpleasant. And these should either be people in your life that you engage with or people from memory. If no one comes to mind, people that may be famous figures, disliked, well-known figures in the world and liked, appealing figures. And what we're going to do is alternate between holding in our mind the image of first a pleasant person looking at us with an expression associated with welcoming and interest. And then we're going to flip to an image of someone who is emotionally distant, disinterested, unhappy, angry, showing signs of irritability. Now, if we can't visualize well in our mind, just think of the names of people and then repeat their names, the pleasant person's name and then the unpleasant. The goal of this is while we hold these alternating images, or names, we're going to note the shifting slight ever subtle symptoms in our body or I should say sensations, what are called somatic markers that shift and indicate to us when we are moving from social engage into a state of mobilize, So hold first in mind someone, either their image or their name, someone you associate with welcoming. And just hold their image or repeat their name in your mind. 
someone smiling, an expression of care. And notice how you feel in your belly, the quality of your breath. any ease or quality in your facial expressions. Perhaps the flow of energy in the body, the overall sense of comfort And then shift to the unpleasant person. And notice the subtle shifts in the body that we might overlook normally, but indicate that there's a change in our subtle even change in our nervous system. Perhaps the stomach slightly starts to tense. Perhaps the facial expression falls flat. Perhaps the shoulders tense ever so slightly or the rhythm of the breath shifts moving towards inhalations. And here's the key. While you hold the image or the repeat the name of someone who's prone to or remember a situation with someone who was angry, upset, volatile, irritable, see if you can keep your nervous system relaxed and in social engage. So while you hold the unpleasant person's image, soften your belly, relax your shoulders. Make sure your exhalations are long and comfortable. Stay aware of your body. The more aware we are and the more we can shift ourselves back into social engage, the more authentic and the less likely we are to habitually wind up in appeasing, placating, inauthentic behaviors. So for the next minute or two, just visualize people that are difficult 
or situations that have been difficult, why you hold these interpersonal images in your mind, practice soothing the physiological state, less stress, more authentic and relaxed we can be. So at this time, I'm going to ring the bowl and that will indicate the conclusion of the meditation portion, although you can continue, of course. For those of you who would like to rejoin um, just take your time when you hear the sound. <laughs> 